0: Well, let's remain standing and turn to God's Word this morning to Mark chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. That will be our reading this morning. That will be our text as we get back into our study of Mark. Mark chapter 12, verses beginning in verse 28. And this is the word of the Lord our God. Let us give heed to it as it is read. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions." As we get ready to look at this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we once again are so thankful that you have given to us your word, that you have given to us these records here in the Gospels of the life and the ministry of our Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to learn from them today pray that you would help he who proclaims your word to do so clearly and accurately and boldly. We pray that we who hear would do so attentively and with an ear to understand. And we pray, O oh God, that your Holy Spirit would be the one who teaches us, that he would illumine our hearts and our understanding and inflame our wills, Lord, that we might do what you call us to do. And we ask this all in Jesus' most wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Of course, keep your Bibles out and open to this passage as we work through these verses this morning. We have lots of quirks as human beings, lots of interesting things about us. Of course, people take their whole lives to to study human behavior and and things such as that. One of the things that, not as important probably as some of the others, but one of the quirks that we have is that we like to grade things. We like to rate things. When you go online and you buy something, they want you to rate uh, the product and the experience that you had. And we like to do stuff like that. We love lists of rankings. We like to read top 10 lists, the top 10 best vacation spots, uh, the, the top 100 songs of all times or, or top 100 rock groups or country groups. We like to discuss those things, even argue about those things. The best music, the best movies, the best sports teams are the best sports players. In fact, a new acronym has sort of worked its way into our vocabulary in the last few years. A GOAT, G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. Barnum & Bailey even billed their circus as the greatest show on earth. Well, apparently this isn't just true in our time, In this passage that we've looked at today, Jesus is asked about what is the greatest. But unlike our discussions about the greatest this or that, the question that is asked today and answered by Jesus is of great importance. The question is this, which commandment is the most important of all? or as Matthew records it in his record of of this episode, what is the great commandment? What is the greatest commandment? Which one towers above all? That's the question that is going to be asked today, and that question is going to lead us this morning, by God's grace, into a discussion of several greatest things. We'll look at the greatest commandment. We'll look at the greatest sin, the greatest gift, the greatest tragedy, and the greatest opportunity. Some of these are right from our text. Others are good and necessary implications drawn from our text. But first, let's ask the question, and let's look at what this passage tells us about the greatest commandment. It's still Tuesday of Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' life before he will be crucified on Friday. And we've seen in the preceding passages uh, before we took our, our break and looked at the book of Ruth, we, we've seen that these other passages, which, which also took place on Tuesday, everything from verse 20 of chapter 11 to where we are at this morning all take place on this one very busy Tuesday. Tuesday. And there's been a series of attempts, we've looked at them, uh, a series of attempts by the Sanhedrin, that highest court of the Jews, to trap Jesus, to trap him in his words, to weaken his popularity, to find some reason, any reason, to be able to arrest him and to bring him before the civil authorities. In 1127, a delegation from the Sanhedrin came to Jesus and challenged his authority. What is your authority? How do you have the authority for this? In chapter 12, in verses 13 through 17, the Pharisees came from that council. The Pharisees tried to trap him in his words. In verses 18 through 27, the Sadducees came and they tried, and all failed as Jesus wisely avoided their traps and turned their words back on them. Now in verse 28, someone else comes. But here it's described as one of the scribes that comes. He comes to Jesus to ask him a question, just one person this time. But there's something apparently different about this man as he approaches. He comes, it seems, not with the preconceived purpose to try to trick Jesus, but Mark says that he approaches Jesus seeing that he answered them well. And the word well there, it doesn't mean that he just got the best of them, which it seems that he did in some of the previous ones, but they're seeing that he gave answers that were good, that were winsome, that were satisfying. This man noticed what Jesus has been saying, how he silenced the Pharisees, how he silenced the Sadducees. And we're going to see at the end of the passage here that Jesus himself sees something different in this man who comes, this man who is called a scribe, an expert in the law of Moses. And it is he who has this question, the question there at the end of verse 28, which commandment is the most important of all? I mentioned us liking to, to rank things. Well, it was common practice among the scribes and the Pharisees to, to rank the different commandments, to, to summarize the commandments, to try to boil everything down into its simplest essence. There's a, a story of a, a Gentile who came to one of the rabbis, and he challenged the rabbi. He said, Rabbi, teach me the law while I stand on one foot. That's how long you have. And this rabbi ended up summarizing and basically what we would refer to as the golden rule. Do to others as you'd want them to do unto you. Although he, he phrased it in a, in a negative way. But they sought to boil all of these things, to find, to find the goat, the greatest of the commandments of all the commands in the Bible and there were many the rabbis remember uh, counted 613 different commands given in the Old Testament and they said that some were weighty some were less weighty some were light which of those this man is asking of all of these commandments which is greatest which commandment is the most important of all Well, in verse 29, Jesus gives his answer. And that in and of itself is a little interesting. If you remember, as we've gone through these these different encounters, it's interesting that it appears here that Jesus senses the sincerity in this man's question. And of course, he knows what is in man, we know. And so uh, as Jesus understands this man's heart, he gives to him what he didn't give to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees, a simple, straightforward answer, definitive answer to his question and the answer the answer is actually in verse 30 and Jesus will quote it in just a moment from Deuteronomy 6.5 which we read this morning but before he does that he quotes from Deuteronomy 6.4 one of the most important verses in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament it was the opening of the evening and morning Jewish prayers. Almost all, if not all, liturgical services included it. It was the most basic confession of faith of the Jewish people. And it is known, both to them and to us very often, by the opening word in Hebrew, Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema means hear, listen. And it's a clear statement of the nature of God and the great confession of monotheism, that there is one God, the Lord is one. So, see here, Jesus is basing his answer of the greatest commandment on this first statement about the nature of God. And note also that he draws it from the Scripture. If Jesus answers questions by drawing from the Scripture, how much more should we? And the nature of God, according to the Shema, is that God is the one true God and that the true God is one. Contra the, the paganism, contra the, the Greek and the Roman system with their pantheons of gods. Now, we know from the teaching of the rest of the Bible that this one God eternally exists in three distinct persons, The doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that triunity, that triunity, the foundation of that Trinity is unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three gods, but he is one God in three distinct persons, each of which is fully God, one in substance, and equal in power and glory. But he is not just God. And he's not just one Lord, as the text says, not just one God. It's not just a generic monotheism that is being professed by the Shema and that is being brought out by Jesus here. Not just a some generic higher power that there's just one of. But he is, look back at the text there, he is our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The God who is one its substance is the God who has chosen to enter into a covenantal love relationship with sinful, rebellious, fallen human beings and has become our God and has called us his people. Hear that, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And hear that, O church, this morning. Hear that. Believe that. Embrace that. And confess that. Jesus starts there. But know also that that, that confession. Hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Know that that confession cannot stop with that declaration. It cannot stop with the the intellect there. To properly know God means to love God. It is because God is who He is and has done what He has done that the greatest commandment is what it is. And verse 30 here in our text follows right on from the declaration of the nature of God in Deuteronomy 6 4 and says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. There's the commandment, there is the greatest commandment, the most important commandment, Jesus says to answer this man who has asked it, it's love God. Love the Lord, your God. We are to love God, not because of what we can get from it. We are to love him because of who he is and what he is like. And that is what the creator, Jesus is saying here, this is what the creator and covenant God deserves and what he expects, what he requires. The first commandment of the ten says, you shall have no other gods before me. Love him. And love him, Moses said, God said, and Jesus says here, love him in this way, to this extent. He says, love him with all your heart. Not just from your head, though that's included, by the way. We must be assured that we are loving the one true God. That's why Jesus starts with that to say that's the one that you are to love, but you are to love him from the the deepest part of our being. That's what the the word heart refers to. Refers to the the center and the the source of our, our life and everything about us. Love God, Jesus says, from there. Love him with all your heart. Love him, Jesus says, God says, with all your soul. Love Him with our emotions. Love is not just emotion, but it is at least emotions. That's part of it. Love Him with your feelings. Have feelings of of love and and admiration and adoration for God. Our love for God is not only to be deep-seated, it is to be intense. All-consuming, inwardly intent. With all of our soul. He says, Love him with all of your mind. Well, that's important too. Our thought life is to be an expression of love for God. In the fall, our minds fell as well. We don't reason right, we don't think clearly, we are fallen thinkers. But Jesus is saying that our thought life is to be submitted to God and an expression of love to him. The way that we reason, the way that we think, which has been affected by the fall, is to be oriented to God out of love for him. We are to bring every thought captive to Christ. Finally, we are to love him with all of your strength. Our love for God is not to be lukewarm. It's not to be missing. It's not to be half-hearted. But we are to love God with all that is in us. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the true God, the one true God, the covenant God, your covenant God, with the totality of your being, internal, external, everything, should be an expression, Christian, of your love for God. Not quite a task. But there's more. But wait, there's more. Now this man just asked for the greatest commandment. Jesus says there are two, and they're tied together. So I have to give you the second one as well. It's in verse 31. He says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is a quote that comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Say the two tables of the law go together. The first four of the Ten Commandments are commandments about how we are to love the Lord our God. The last six tell us how we are to love our neighbor. And it all goes together. If you love God, you will love those who are created in His image. You cannot properly love your neighbor except in the context of loving God and you cannot properly love God unless you likewise love your neighbor. We are to love God who created us, who redeemed us, and we are to love our neighbor who he also created in his image. And after all, to love is to be like God, isn't it? Because 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. He is its source. He is its fountain. He is its definition, its author, and he is its fulfillment. If you would be like God... Beloved brothers and sisters this morning, love God, love your neighbor. Love, after all, is what Jesus said, shows the world that we are his disciples if we have love one for another. And we can't have proper love for one another unless we love God properly. And do we need to perhaps take just a moment and define what we mean by love? Paul did it as well as anyone in an inspired way. He said love is patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. He said, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's what we are to show. Love looks to the needs of others. Love rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weep. Love thinks more highly of others than it does of itself. Love sacrifices for others. Love forgives others. People of God, this morning, this is not optional. You cannot properly love God without loving your neighbor. And you cannot love your neighbor without loving God. You can't do one without the other. 1 John 4.21 says, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And in fact, it says, That if anyone says, I love God, Do you love God this morning? Would you say, I love God? He says, if anyone says, I love God, And hates his neighbor... John says, God says, that person is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see how closely these are bound together. Beloved people of God, this morning, each of us, love your neighbor, even as you love God. Love your neighbor. To the Old Testament, to the Jews, and, that, and that, that passage out of Leviticus 19, one's neighbor was someone from the covenant community. But remember, Jesus sort of blew that up in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which was given an answer to the question, who's my neighbor? And the answer was, the answer is, whomever the Lord puts in your path, to help that is your neighbor especially galatians 6:10 says those of the household of faith and not just with words but with actions james helps us with that he says of all you do for a brother and sister in need is say be warmed and filled if all you do is say i'll pray for you What have you really done? Now, it's important that you pray for them. We are to pray for one another always, but if you have the ability to be the answer to that prayer and you don't do it, you've not really loved them the way God wants us to love one another. So that's the answer that Jesus gives. Which commandment is the most important of all? Those two things cover it all. Now, we need to be clear. Jesus is not saying that the other commandments are are not important. Remember Jesus' statement in Matthew 5. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. All of the commandments are important. Every word that comes out of the mouth of God is to be observed. But these two are the macro commandments of God, the overarching. In Matthew's record of this interaction, Jesus said at the end, on these two hang all of the law and all of the prophets. And here, Jesus concludes by saying, There is no other commandment greater than these. And if that is true, and it is, then the next heading here can be somewhat brief. We've seen the greatest commandment, now we see the greatest sin. Now, the scribe in today's story doesn't ask this, but we have to look at it. The Bible is very clear in regard to sin it uses several words that we translate as sin and talk about at least seven different words. Our own catechism sort of gathers them all up and says that sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Doing anything that the law says not to do or not doing anything the law says to do, that's sin. And if all of the commandments all the commandments of God can be summarized in two, love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself, then the greatest sin can be likewise summarized. The greatest sin, the most grievous transgression, the, the master sin that covers all of it, the macro sin, is to fail to love God with our whole being or to fail to love our brothers and sisters, our neighbor, as ourselves. If love is the fulfillment of the law, as Romans 13.10 tells us that it is, Paul says very clearly, love is the fulfillment of the law, then failing to show love is the transgression of the law. And people of God this morning that really shows us where we're at, doesn't it? Because love, showing love, demonstrating love to God and to others has both, of course, inward and outward components. And loving God and loving our brothers and sisters, if it is truly godly love, it is done in thought, in word, and in deed. First John 3.18 tells us that. And let's be just very honest about it. We don't do that. None of us do. Not a one of us do. We can keep some of the commandments some of the time to an external level. None of us keep all of the commandments any of the time. And none of us keep any of the commandments all of the time. But most of us by God's restraining grace have not run into the most heinous sins or have we? If the greatest sin is to not love God and to not love neighbor as God has called us to then we are all in big trouble because none of us have done that. I have not done that. I know you haven't done it either. We can love And I would say, again, that everyone here would echo Peter. Lord, you know that I love you. But do we love him as much as he tells us we have to love him? Do we love him enough? With all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, have you loved God that much? No. Not even close. And do we love our neighbor enough? Do you love your neighbor enough? Do you love those sitting around you? Enough. Do you love them to the, degree, to, the, to the degree that you love yourself? Do you look to the needs of others more than your own? Do you never envy or you never jealous of one another? Is there anyone in, in this church, in your family, that you simply refuse to forgive? Do we love our neighbor enough? No, we don't. Not even close. How do you think that will stand in the judgment that is coming when Christ returns? Our failure to keep the greatest commandment is our greatest sin. And if we get that, if we really get that, then we will drop to our knees in praise for the next thing that we want to mention this morning, and that is the greatest gift. The greatest gift. Beloved, the greatest gift is that Christ has fulfilled the greatest commandment for you. He loved God perfectly for you. He loved his neighbor as himself for you. He was born under the law in order to fulfill the law for all who believe in him. In every thought, in every word, in every action, Jesus manifests perfect love to God and man. And that perfection is credited to you by faith. Again, Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Ultimately, that means he came to express perfect, divine, acceptable love of God and of neighbor. It was Jesus himself who defined the greatest gift, which is the greatest love, when he said that the greatest love is this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. And Jesus did just that, didn't he? And more. More because he laid down his life for his enemies, us, those who hated him. He gave up his life for those who hated God and hated their neighbor. God so loved the world that he gave his son, and his son so loved the world that he gave his life. He gave his life to fill up what you lack. He loved to the death because you and I have not loved as we should and would not love as we should. He's fulfilled the greatest commandment for you, Christian, and so gave the greatest gift. And he's also working in us as Christians now, working in us by his Spirit to cause us to love. He's given us the Holy Spirit who is working to produce his fruit in our lives. And what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. He's working in us that good work that he began and that he will complete is to make us loving. Well, let's get back to our text and look fourthly at the greatest tragedy. I said earlier that we see a difference in this man, this scribe who had come, something that we certainly have not seen in the recent encounters that Jesus had had with representations of the Sanhedrin. And in verse 32, after Jesus said uh, this gave the answer to him. The scribe said to him, "You are right, teacher." Now if you've been following along with us over the past few months, you might expect a but to come after that, but there's not. Look at verse 32 and, and on. The scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. On the one hand, that's a remarkable thing. That's a positive thing to remember. In fact, it's marvelous to learn that there were those within the Jewish religious leadership who were not so hostile to Jesus as the rest of them were. There were others that pop up along through the record of the New Testament. There was Joseph Joseph of Arimathea. He was a respected member of the Council of the Sanhedrin. And he was a secret follower of Jesus. John 19.38 says He's the one who requested Jesus' body after his death and and gave him a proper burial, gave him his tomb. Uh, Nicodemus is another one. He was right there with Joseph of Arimathea coming to receive, to ask for the body of Christ and to bury Jesus. There was Gamaliel in Acts 5.33. He was a Pharisee, and he's the one that cautioned the other members of the council about their treatment of the apostles. And there's this man. He's not given a name, but he seems to be at least not belligerent toward Jesus. He seems to have asked a genuine question, and his response to the answer that Jesus gave seems to show a genuine desire to hear what Jesus has to say. And he says, I agree. At the end, he basically quotes Hosea 6.6, which says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He says that, that these things, loving our God and loving our neighbor, that's worth more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that's right. Now, it's not to say that the sacrificial system was without validity at, the, at that time or necessity under the Old Testament, but he recognizes its relative worth. It's like what God said in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. And the obedience that God is asking for here, is demanding here, is that we love him and that we love one another. Unlike the, the rich man remember back in Mark 10, our scribe here demonstrates a proper perspective a proper heart, it seems, to understand. And Jesus declares his position in verse 34 that he is not far from the kingdom of God. But that statement, at the same time, a description of him having at least an intellectual understanding of some of the things of God, but beloved, it is also one of the most tragic statements ever uttered and one of the most dangerous places in which anyone can find themselves. Because Jesus doesn't say that this scribe is in the kingdom. He says he's not far from the kingdom. What is lacking in this man is the same thing that was lacking in the rich young ruler, faith. And let me tell you, there are many people in many churches today that are not far from the kingdom. Oh, they're surrounded by it. Every Sunday morning when they come and they sit in the pew, they're up to their ears in the means of grace. The preaching of the word, the ordinances of the church, prayer, the songs of the kingdom, they hear the pronouncements of forgiveness. They attend Sunday school. They go to prayer meetings. All of the trappings of the glorious kingdom of God as it is on this earth, they experience, they see they are not far from the kingdom of God. And yet, many continue to remain outside of it. Like a poor man living in the slums that butt right up against the king's palace. Right outside, but without any of the benefits. There are many who attend church all of their lives, There are many who have been raised in the church and exposed to the means of grace, all of these things, so many who even confuse being not far from the kingdom with being in the kingdom and think that that's good enough. There are young people in every church that I have ever served, including this one, who have been raised around the benefits of the kingdom and yet express no interest, it seems, in becoming a part of that kingdom. They're content to stay not far from the kingdom of God, but not in it. And that is tragic. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's so easy to confuse the two, to think you're in when you're just not far. When you can see it, when you can hear it, when you can understand it, when you can experience things that are part of it, Jesus even said on the last day that there will be many who will be cast into hell who lived their lives not far from the kingdom of God with many credentials from the kingdom to lay at Jesus' feet and say, didn't we do this and didn't we do this and didn't we do this? And Jesus said, I'll say, I never knew. They were not far, but they were not in. The greatest tragedy is to be content to stay not far from the kingdom. Now, we're not told what ended up happening to this scribe in our passage. But I do know this, for us sitting here today, that God gives to us, finally, here, the greatest opportunity. The opportunity to receive this greatest gift that Jesus Christ has purchased and now offers to you at no cost to make it your own to move from being not far from the kingdom to being a member of the glorious, eternal kingdom of God. Forgiveness for loving neither God nor neighbor as we are called to do. And Christ's record of perfect love to God and man is available to any and to all that will accept it and receive it by faith, by simply believing in Christ. And by doing so, to be brought into the kingdom of God by grace. If you have not done that, do that. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Be sure that you are not not far from the kingdom, but that you are in it. By faith, that's the difference. And for Christians, let us pray that God will, by His Spirit, through his working, increase in us the love that he demands, the love that he expects, the love, don't miss it, that he deserves. And to love our neighbor as we should. And to that, let us say, Amen. Our Father, we thank you that though We fail. We fail woefully in keeping your law, in keeping this great commandment to love you and to to love our neighbor. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you have sent Christ to fulfill all of that for us. We pray that you would help us to love you as we should, to love our neighbor as we should, and to give thanks to you for the fact that though we fail, that Christ has done it. And we pray, Lord, that if there are any hearing this this morning who have been content to live at a distance from Christ, that you, O God, will sovereignly work in their heart and draw them to your kingdom through Christ, through faith. We ask this in the name of our Lord. Amen.